If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. With me today is Martin Newman, founder of the Customer First Group and author of The Power of Customer Experience. And we're going to be discussing how to truly be customer first. And welcome to the podcast, Martin, firstly. Hi, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You have a storied experience in the customer service and consumer uh, research market. I'll reel off a few parts of your history that I'm curious about, your experience. I know you've been a head at e-commerce, a number of brands, including Burberry, Intersport, Pentland Brand Group, Harrods, Ted Baker. You hold several non-executive director or advisory roles in e-commerce and retail type businesses and initiatives, speaker, podcaster, and author on this topic too, which leads me to my first question is that you have so much customer first, customer centric experience. I want to know what a typical day looks like for you. Uh, I can imagine Mm -hmm. it's weird and wonderful. (laughs) That's a good observation, Scott. I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that there is a typical day. Um, it's quite hmm. interesting. I mean, at the moment, I, so I created a, a mini online MBA in customer centricity with yeah. an education partner, which is the Oxford College of Marketing and Oxford College of uh, Leadership and Management. And the first cohort is going to be in June, so I'm, I'm deep in the middle of uh, finalising this. Well, I finalised the syllabus a, a while ago, but I'm basically creating all the content. For that, at the moment, I've started recording some of the pre-recorded sessions. It's a mix of pre-recorded and, you know, some live Q and A's and webinars and whatnot. So that's going to take up quite a bit of time, I reckon, in the next couple of years, and I'm quite excited about that. My most recent book, my second book, The Power of Customer Experience, came out last week. Uh, so that's caught fire and seems to have uh, caught people's imaginations. So quite a lot of uh, conversations around that. You pointed out that I do advisory work. Um, and again, it does tend to be around the subject of customer centricity and everything relating to that. And I know we're going to expand a bit on that throughout the podcast. Um, I'm very privileged to work with a company called the Mayborn Group, who are the leader really in the sort of infant product sector. You know, they have a, a 
cup called Tommy Tippy, uh, you may have heard of, or a brand called Tommy Tippy, amongst many other related uh, products. I am the chair of the advisory board for them. I chair the, I'm the non-exec chair, I should say, of the retail arm of the Scouts, uh, which I really enjoy. And, you know, I've got other advisory roles. I'm, I'm involved with a business called ClearPay. I've been a board advisor for them for the last few years. So yeah, but I guess the way I, the way I structure my day is it is a bit portfolio, and I, what I tend to do is just try to do a bit of everything every day. So I try to mm. move all the things that I'm doing forward, just sometimes a little nudge here and there. And what I like about it, to be honest, is it, it gives me a, it, it gives me equilibrium. You know, the fact that I might be doing ten or twelve different things every day. If one or two things are not going well, there's always three or four things that are going well, you know, and that, that allows me to maintain my kind of glass half full uh, mindset, which I tend to have, you know. Whereas if I'm only doing one thing and it's not it's it's not going well, you know, it would probably drag me down. So I quite like having that kind of portfolio approach to what I do. I suppose the final thing to mention is I run a website called Customer Service Action, um, which is a platform that provides consumers with a vehicle essentially to share their good and bad experiences that they've had with brands, which we subsequently then share with the brands and hope that they will do something to, to resolve it if it's been an issue. Um, but we're also taking the technology from that platform and selling it into other consumer businesses for that to become the front line of their customer service. It's a, a story for another day probably, but that's that's something else that keeps me going, you know, and as I'm, as I'm finding out with new technology, Everybody likes to be second, and no one likes to be first. <laughs> so we're currently we're currently having conversations with a, a few brands, including some quite big, you know, including including one of the grocers, who hopefully might choose to be the first to go live with us sometime this year. We shall see. Mm. And as you're talking through that, it strikes me that you must have quite an experimental mindset and a a willingness because. You talk there about speaking. Uh, well, I mentioned in the intro, speaking, podcasting, authoring, being in those non-exec director roles and advisory roles. These are all different mediums in which to mm -hmm. achieve whatever, actually, and we'll get onto this in a moment, whatever your primary goal and driver is. So, yeah, I guess uh, it kind of makes sense to me that you, what you've just said about your day and that you like to mix it up because then you've at least got one or two things that are going well even if the others aren't but is there anything else that drives that more generalist nature is that how you describe yourself uh, i don't know that i would no i would i definitely don't see myself as a generalist i see myself as a specialist right. and i mean what's interesting is you know people in industry i mean i'm quite i'm quite well known now you know i don't mean that in an arrogant sense but yeah. you know within the re particularly within the retail sector because i've just got quite a high profile and i've been doing lots of stuff that people hopefully find reasonably interesting but a lot of people would have probably seen me as being an e-commerce specialist you know particularly because i'd run right. on you know, ran online and multi-channel for the, the brands you mentioned earlier, Harris, Burberry, Pentland, Ted Baker, etc. But actually, I'm a consumer specialist. That's my specialism. You know, I think I've always had an innate understanding of consumer behavior. And, you know, I've now got data to back it up that I generate through my platform. But, you know, and, and, and really in every role that I've ever had since I started working on the shop floor of my father's retail optical practices in Glasgow, you know, has involved you know, trying to deliver better experiences for customers. And it's something I'm genuinely passionate about. And I'm trying to be a force for positive change. Um, and that's not just a glib, 
you know, um, uh, soundbite. It's something I, I, I genuinely mean. And, and, you know, the platform I have is not really a revenue generator at the moment. It hasn't been for a couple of years, but it's making a difference for consumers because it's improving the experience for them. And it's making a difference for brands because they're getting to learn more about what they need to do to serve customers more effectively. So, you know, I'm trying to be a force for positive change in a number of ways, and I'm sure we'll elaborate upon that. You know, I think it's really important that, you know, you leave your mark on the world in a positive way. And, you know, I'd certainly like to have a legacy and I hope that legacy will be a positive one. And somewhere down the line, people, you know, people when they think of me will go, you know, there's a guy who actually did drive some positive change for, you know, humanity in some shape or form in and around the area that he was involved in. Um, and if I can do that, I'll be I'll be happy. Although I might not be around to, to be happy. <laughs> well, you can be happy with what you Happy with what you're achieving now, but um, you touched on as you were talking there. I think that you said that uh, your father owned a shopping club. Was it a shopping Glasgow, a retail? He owned a he owned a small chain of opticians. So I mean, at one Uh point, he had four or five uh, retail optical practices in Glasgow. Uh Um, So he was in quite early when I mean he was. He was kind of pre-Specsavers um, and Vision Express. I mean, you you probably wouldn't remember this because mm-hmm. you may not you may have been a, a very young man at the time. I'm not sure, but going back to the early 1980s when I joined my dad's business, uh, re, um, optics used to be a very heavily heavily regulated industry. It wasn't a wow. it wasn't the industry that you see today. It wasn't very commercial. It was like going into a doctor's surgery. It was a very sterile environment. They weren't allowed to market, and then the government opened it all up, and that that's what essentially drove the proliferation of choice that exists today within optics where you have all the brands that are there today. Um, but I got involved in his business just as those, just as it, as it was opening up, which meant that my dad could start to market. And, you know, we were doing, like, very rudimentary but very early CRM. We were, you know, targeting patients that hadn't been in for an eye test for a couple of years, and you know, just picking up the phone and calling them and reminding them that they should be booking an eye test, you know. So we were doing lots of things that, you know, even today some businesses probably don't do as well as they might do. But that's where I cut my teeth essentially um, mm. in retail to begin with and, and definitely where I got, uh, where I think I discovered my passion for customer experience. That's really interesting. And because it was the reason I asked that about your father and about those, um, about the opticians is because of that reason I wanted to know you know, for you to spend such an amount of time across so many mediums in customer centricity, in consumerism, you have to be driven by something. And it's really interesting to know that you had that early experience. Was it a case that you had that experience, you got hooked and you never really looked back? You know, I, I kind of think it's a bit of both. I think that's part of it, but I think it's just something that's part of me. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I do believe in I do believe in nurture and versus maybe a bit more than nature. And yeah. and I think that, you know, on the nurture side of things, I mean, I'm actually adopted as it happens, but, you know, my, my really the person I am is very much as a result of my adopted parents who brought me up and, you know, gave me all the opportunities in life that I had. And I'm very grateful for it. And certainly going with my dad to his retail optical practices, 
to be honest with you, my experience with my dad started long before I actually joined the business. I mean, I used to go to my dad's uh, main practice in Paisley, which is a town on the outskirts of Glasgow, every Saturday as a five or six-year-old. Um, and I'd spend the whole day with him there in the practice. And, you know, I'd, I'd sit in the car and listen to football for a bit of time. But I'd spend the rest of the time in the practice watching my dad, watching customers, seeing my dad, how he served them, how he sold them glasses after he tested their eyes. And, and that definitely was the moment, I think, where I probably got quite hooked into you know, the whole experience and how you could do things better. And I remember talking to my dad. My dad used to spend quite a lot of money on a regular basis, every couple of years, essentially upgrading and updating the uh, visual merchandising and the, the shop fit of each of his uh, branches. And I used to say to him, you know, why are you doing that? You know, that's an awful lot of money. And he said, well, if I don't do it and I don't keep it, I don't keep it fresh and I don't keep it new, then our patients, our customers will go elsewhere, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So he really was himself a very natural practitioner of customer experience. And he didn't, go, he didn't have to go to university to, to, to study it or to learn about it. He just had an instinct, I think, for what, what good looked like and what he had to do to ensure that his proposition, the products he sold, his ability as an optician, and the environment that he uh, sold the frames and the glasses in and tested people's eyes in was engaging. Um, and I think he just got all of that and, and it was a fairly natural thing for him. And I guess I picked up on that. And it's also going to mean this next question means we're really switching gears because I think about that. I think you talked about the 80s there. And now my first question was going to be moving into your definition of being customer first today. And I want to give some context here and just start out by saying that, like you know, in marketing, we use in marketing and in e-commerce, we often talk and you see a lot of content that talks about people being customer first or customer centric. But I sit here, you know, I'm working from home, I'm behind a computer, I'm in marketing every day. I feel quite far removed. I have lots of data about our, cost- our clients and our customers and our customers' customers, but I still feel like the marketer is quite far removed from the customer. So I'm really interested to know what does yeah, being customer first mean to you? Well, it's a great question, Scott. And and to be honest with you, that's why I wrote my first book back in two well, I wrote it in two thousand seventeen. Mm-hmm. It was published in two thousand and eighteen, which is called Hundred Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience. Because I've been using that terminology for a long time. In fact, interestingly, I know you know, on Facebook when you get your your memories popping up every day of, you know, what what you posted on the same date five years ago and everything. And there was a memory popped up on on, on my stream, um, which was from the London School of Economics in 2014, where I did a keynote presentation. And, you know, the, the, the screen is actually uh, on that image because I took a shot of it. And the title was Using Customer Centricity to Improve Sales and Profitability. And that's pretty much, yeah. it's almost, it's like the byline of my current book, The Power of Customer Experience. So I've been talking about this stuff yeah. for a long time. But when I wrote my first book, the reason why I wrote it is I thought, I'm not actually sure, you know, what does it mean to be truly customer first? What does it mean to be truly customer centric? What does it mean to put the customer at the heart of all you do? And more importantly, how do you do it? Because I didn't see too many people doing it. And I was running a consulting business at the time that I grew from me to 100 people called Practicology, which is now called Pattern. And I remember doing a presentation even to my own team. And these are all people that came from the client side like me and had great experience across multiple channels of engaging with consumers and selling to consumers. And, you know, when I, when I was presenting the kind of vision for my book, I kind of saw a lot of kind of blank 
expressions around the room. <laughs> if a lot of people here don't really know what I'm talking about today. And I think that my first book, and that's not being it's not being disrespectful to them. I think it, what I'm trying to say is that the timing wasn't wasn't quite right. You go back three years. Yes, everyone was talking about it, but no one was doing it. Today, I think the timing is perfect. And I yeah. think that most people now accept that if you don't truly look after your customers, you probably won't have a business in the future. And yet saying that, you know, I talk to lots of CEOs and I talk to lots of boards on a regular basis. And you, you will, you'll have heard this expression where everyone talks about the cost to serve. And the minute you hear yeah. a CEO or a board or anyone in a senior role in a business that, that sells to consumers, whether that's retail, hospitality, automotive, whatever, financial services, when you hear them mention cost to serve, you know they've got a problem. Because the minute that the minute they say that, you know that that's the focus, that they're not treating customers as a profit center, they're treating, treating them as a cost center. And that drives the wrong decision making. Because when something's a cost center, invariably what happens is the shareholders or the CEO or the chairman or someone says, you need to cut costs. And so what happens all the time is headcounts are cut, resources are taken away, the technology isn't invested in, and ultimately the customer is the one that suffers. And so these become the cause and effect of pure customer experience. Whereas if you understand about customer, or if your focus is about customer lifetime value, and what do you need to do to maximize the value of Scott's business or Martin's business to your organization over the next few years? And then you work back from there and you decide, what do I need to do with systems, people, processes? with marketing, with loyalty and everything else, you know, it's a very different approach. And the businesses that do that are the businesses who are successful year after year after year. And the ones who don't focus on it as a cost center and focus on customers as a cost center have a very sort of cyclical approach to profitability. They might be profitable one year when they cut costs, but I can assure you they won't the next. And sadly, some of the businesses that are no longer around have fallen by the way as a result of that. So if I give you a very quick definition of what it means to me, first of all, it's focusing on, as I say, uh, customer lifetime value and treating customers as a profit center. If you really want to be customer centric, you have to be a people first business. And, you know, again, most organizations today are not really looking after their people. And if you take retail as an industry, you know, I just did some uh, work with somebody who provides training solutions for front end employees in retail organizations. And, you know, I did some mystery shopping right across the whole of South London around DIY retail and grocers. And the experience is not great. But I don't blame the people who are in the front line. I don't think businesses are looking after their colleagues well enough. You know, they pay them minimum wage or they give them minimum or they give them um, zero hour contracts. So we don't look after them in, in a commercial sense. There's very limited training and development. There's no succession planning. You know, people are not being given career development or career opportunities to see how they might progress within the organization. And, and that's why they end up churning. That's why they end up leaving. And so I think there's a clear correlation there. And if you want your people to serve customers to the best of their ability, you have to give them, you have to create the right environment for them. Now, some of that also means giving them the right tools and the right technology. Um, and that applies to customers as well. So when you talk about technology, businesses are very quick to implement something new without necessarily knowing whether it's really going to make a difference. And my starting mm -hmm. point with technology is always about empowerment. How can you empower your people to do their jobs more effectively 
to be more productive, to be more efficient and to serve customers more effectively? And how do you empower customers to have the type of experience that they're looking for? And if, again, if that's your starting point, then it's a much more positive starting point. And then you're thinking about what, whatever decisions you make will ultimately lead to a better experience and a better commercial outcome. And of course, you can't be customer centric these days without, you know, purpose and values and what you do around social responsibility and diversity. And these tend to be treated, I think, you know, purpose, social responsibility, diversity, sustainability. They're buzzwords and they're treated like buzzwords, they're treated like sound bites. They're often treated as a tick box exercise in a boardroom where, you know, the business will do the minimum and show that it's doing something, you know, but often it's kicking the can down the road, you know, whether that's saying we'll be we will be a sustainable business by twenty thirty. You know, why is it going to take nine years to be sustainable? It's because they haven't done the work to work out what it's going to take to get there. They might be able to do it in a year if they had a real focus on it. You know, or when it comes to diversity, it's, you know, ticking a box with a diversity quota and making sure that they, you know, they bring in a non-exec director from an ethnic background or whatever it happens to be. But it's got to be much deeper and much broader and much more meaningful than that. And I think that even if I just talk about diversity for two seconds, you know, most businesses, if you look at their boards and you look at their senior management team, their executive team, they're not reflective of the people that, that that's actually buying from them and the people that they're selling to, their customers. And therefore, how relevant is their proposition going to be if they don't have people making the big decisions who really understand the people that they're selling to? Now, let me give you an example. There are 14 million disabled consumers in the UK. You might be surprised by that. Most people are when I tell them that. They don't they don't realize it's an enormous community. And the commercial value of that community and that audience is huge. And yet when you look at how poorly served they are, again, if we just talk about retail, you know, inaccessibility for wheelchairs. I've interviewed, you know, a number of consumers who have guide dogs because, you know, they're either blind or extremely visually impaired. And they've been stopped. You know, at the door, they're not allowed into the store because the staff member thinks they shouldn't be coming in there with a dog. You know, that's against the law, but they don't know any better because they haven't been educated or trained properly in the first place. And, you know, that this is a huge community of customers with a massive commercial value. So all these things, whether it's, you know, diversity, whether it's sustainability or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, they're both morally the right thing to do, but they're also commercially the right thing to do. But I think most businesses at the moment, don't really see that they don't really have the vision of what what the implications of all that of all that means to their business there's so much i can unpack from what you've just said there sure. I, I guess a key thing a key thing that stands out to me uh which i was going to come on to a bit later anyway for it looking at it from a different perspective but training of your of your customer service teams to be customer first you have to give your team the necessary training and also value them as employees as you said um you know not paying minimum wage offering contracts not zero zero hour contracts those seem to be critical critical elements that are affecting the customer service industry and causing low standards i'd add something to that i mean i think a lot of it at the end of the day is about culture um it's about the Mm -hmm. culture of the organization and you know creating an environment i mean 
if you have a good culture as a business, for example, and I'm sure you all have experienced this in different environments you've worked in. I've worked in businesses where, you know, there's been a poor culture, there's been a fear factor, you know, people have been scared of the environment almost they worked in, you know, scared to hold their hand up or ask what they might think might be a silly question in a meeting for, for fear of being seen as being stupid or or not being not being encouraged to to trial something, you know, the, the term we use, Scott, fail you know, failing fast. Most businesses still work that way. Most businesses, you know, when it comes to doing something new, you know, they want to be 100% convinced that what they're doing is going to guarantee a payback for them before they, they press the, the button. You know, you can't do that in this day and age. If you look at all the disruptive brands that are out there, Uber, Airbnb, Monzo Bank, Starling Bank, etc., you know, Tesla, you know, these are businesses that, you know, had an instinct that what they were doing was going to be revolutionary and was going to really empower consumers. And they were using technology to change the experience for customers and make it much better. They didn't know 100% that it was going to be commercially effective, right? Because how can you when you're doing something for the first for the first time? But in most traditional businesses, the you don't have a culture that encourages people to do that. You know, you have a, a fear of failure rather than almost celebrating failure because you're learning from it because you tried something and it didn't work. You tried something else and it did work and it really made a difference. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. And I think the other thing that's got a lot to do with it is about empowerment. Um, you know, when you contact, I'm sure you've contacted businesses over the years about customer service issues. And when you end up getting through to the contact center or you end up in an email string with someone or Twitter, whatever it happens to be, you know, more often than not, you get computer says no just because they're not empowered to make a decision. Now, I'm going to give you a quick story, and I'll paint a picture for you on this one. I was in Miami seven years ago on holiday with my wife and kids. We were in uh, one of the very upmarket shopping centers in Bow Harbor. Uh, I was walking around looking at all the brands, thinking I can't afford anything in here. Anyway, we walked into this store called Balenciaga. I have to be honest, even though I'm a brand man, I'd, at that time, I'd, I'd never heard of them. Anyway, but it became very obvious to me what it was all about because it was, it was very expensive handbags. And my wife and my eldest daughter picked up this clutch bag and went, oh, look, it's beautiful. Oh, and look. And they, and they looked at the price and went, oh, and it's so much cheaper than it is back home in Selfridges. Now, I had a, my 20th wedding anniversary coming up, so I said to my wife, Laura, I said, okay, you can see where this is going. Would you like that as a, as an anniversary present, seeing as it's so much cheaper than it is back home in Selfridges? And she said, no, 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 no. And in fact, if you buy that for me, I'll be really angry with you. Now, I'm a man that reads women's minds because I knew that what she actually meant was, yes, 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 yes. But don't you dare buy it for me now. Surprise me when we get back home. So we came back home a few days later and... Of course, I remembered this and I thought, right, it's my anniversary on Wednesday. This is now like Monday morning. And I'm thinking, I can't get, I looked at my phone, I looked at my diary. I can't get anywhere near Selfridges because I'm literally rammed with client meetings and everything. And so I thought I'd buy it online. Selfridges at that time couldn't guarantee delivery for me on Tuesday evening, which is what I really needed to make sure I had it for Wednesday morning. I found it on Matches Fashion. And they could deliver it between six and nine o'clock on Tuesday evening. I thought, brilliant. Look at my diary. I'm out for dinner with my very most important customer. I thought there's no chance I'm cancelling that. It's been in the diary for months and it's such an important client. So I phoned their contact centre and explained my predicament. I said, look, can you arrange for the courier to send it between eight and nine, not between six and nine? And I guarantee I'll get home for them. Really sorry, sir, but our courier doesn't offer that service. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I'm like, 
do you know how much that bag is? This is a £1,200 bag and you're telling me they don't offer that service. I said, will you do me the courtesy of asking the question if they could facilitate that? Certainly, Mr. Newman. Took my name, took my number, didn't call me back. I still made the order because, I or I still bought it because at this point I'm really stressed, locked into mm-hmm. it thinking if I don't buy this bag, I'm heading to the divorce courts. Anyway, <laughs> as it happens, I got lucky. I got home about half seven and the bag turned up. Um, and my wife was suitably delighted the next day, although still a bit angry that I'd spent that money. But there you go. Anyway, the moral of the story is I contacted Ruth Chapman, who's the founder of the business. And I said to her, I told her the story. And and she actually was gracious enough to allow me to do uh, to put it in as a case study in my first book, um, you know, The 100 Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience. Yeah. And basically, I said to her, this is about one thing and one thing only. It's about empowerment. Your customer service team are not empowered to do the right thing for customers. And what that pair, what that what that guy did to who I spoke to on the phone, he thought he was doing the right thing. He was sticking by the rules. Now mm-hmm. you, I know you'll be horrified by that because that imagine how many people possibly don't, how many sales you lose on an annual basis as a result mm-hmm. of situations like that. Maybe not exactly the same situation, but similar scenarios where your team don't make the right decision because you haven't created the right cultural environment for them where they feel that they're empowered to do the right thing. And she changed the service orientation of the business off the back of that. I can I promise you that. Say case studies in my book. Um, so it's very rewarding the fact that, you know, she did that. But that's just a great example of the difference between when you're engaging with customer service, the difference between engaging with people who are empowered versus those who aren't. And it's a cultural thing at the end of the day. Yeah, you've used the words culture and environment uh, a few times now, which is great because that's kind of what I wanted you to describe as in, could you describe a customer first culture or a customer first environment, whether it's research from your book or whether it's your first hand experience of working in those environments? What is it that they do practically that makes it customer first? Sure. So let's let me give you a few examples. Um, Home Depot in the US or North America are one of the big DIY retailers of the kind of B and Q, I guess, of North America. Um, mm. So, for example, their their colleagues in store are allowed to give discounts up to fifty dollars. Right now, whether that's to help close a sale or whether that's to help deal with a customer service issue, they are empowered to do that. Now, if I use a contrasting example of having been across you know, all the big name DIY retailers in the south of London a few weeks ago, I can tell you that not a single person tried to sell me anything. Um, So there's a great example of empowering their people Mm. who have the best opportunity because they're on the front line. They're the ones that will determine the commercial success of Home Depot, not the people in the head office. Obviously, you've got to have the right products to sell, but then you need staff who can deliver the right type of experience in order to sell those products. Uh, and they do that well. But more than that, you know, they, they help out their, their team, their employees, if they're in financial distress or have financial emergencies. They encourage their team uh, and their employees to uh, further their own uh, knowledge by taking up further education and they pay for it they reimburse them this is a business that demonstrates in everything that it does that it cares mm-hmm. about its people so guess what as people go the extra mile they're massively incentivized to do it not just because of how they're remunerated but because of the fact that they're empowered they're empowered to make decisions you know if you're working in a business where you know you can make a difference you jump out of bed every day whereas if you're working in a business and you have a fear of failure because it's the opposite. 
you don't want to be there. All you're really doing is trying to survive so you can pay your mortgage month after month. It's a very, very different you know, mindset. Um, another example of, of a great business is AO.com, uh, AO Worlds, as they are listed on the stock market, used to be called Appliances Online. So these guys sell fridge freezers, washing machines, tumble dryers, TVs. And from, from employing people to how they measure um, the capabilities and the services that their team deliver, they're truly customer-centric. So I know, because I've spoken to them many times over the years, that they look, to, they look to hire people who are both humble and ambitious. Now, what does that actually mean when you break it down? Well, humility means that you've got, you know, you're prepared to stick your hands up if you get something wrong. You're prepared to admit if you got something wrong. You're prepared to do something about it, and you're open about it. And that drives a lot of trust, whether that's with your colleagues or whether that's with customers. But then the ambition means that you also want to continually improve what you do. You want to do the best that you can for the business, and you want to do the best that you can for customers. So you get the kind of perfect mix, I think, in terms of the attributes and the core competencies that you're looking for in an individual, the values in a way and the big key key behaviors. If you take that right the way through to the people who deliver and install the washing machines, fridge freezers, tumble dryers, and TVs, in most businesses, 99% of businesses, those people would be measured by one thing and one thing only. How many did you install in a day? They only measure, A only measures customer satisfaction. They're not interested in whether you did 10 or whether you did two. What they are interested in is did customers give you 90% plus for the experience they've just had. And they measure that. And, and if they don't, those people are penalized <laughs> in some shape or form, commercially, presumably. Um, but what it does is it drives the right behavior. So it turns, you know, that that last mile experience, which is so important, even more important for a business that's only online, like AO.com, you know, they're not, they don't have a physical store. So it's even more important because for many people, that's their first physical interaction with the brand. They might have been on the website, They've never met anybody that works for the business until somebody sets foot in their house to install a washing machine. Um, and then I suppose another example I would give you would be Patagonia, um, the outdoor uh, brand. And I think that what you can tell with Patagonia, what's very obvious to their customers, as well as obviously to their employees, is that this is a business that genuinely cares. You know, more often than not, when you go into the Patagonia website, you know, the homepage of the website, it's not selling you outdoor products. It's got a message on there that it cares deeply about and that it's promoting and it's using, you know, its visibility to promote. So, for example, a few weeks ago, I was on there and there was a, a message on there about the Gochin, who are an indigenous population in Alaska who are having their homes and their environment destroyed by companies drilling for oil. You know, this is a cause-led and purpose-led business. And that's why they've been able to grow their business successfully. And what you find is when you look at these businesses and you look at their commercial performance, honestly, I could give you, I mean, in my new book, there are dozens of examples, in fact, there's more than that, it's probably over 100 examples and case studies of businesses who are commercially successful year after year after year after year. And they're commercially successful because they are customer-centric. And they're customer-centric because they put their people first. They put their customers first. You know, they, they, they have a genuine purpose. They do care about the environment. They are diverse. They are inclusive. And I suppose the final thing I would say is what they do really, really well, and I'm not sure they always set out to do this, but what they do really, really well is they, they turn customers into fans. 
And that's the difference between businesses who have very up and down sales performances. They have customers. They don't have fans. But these brands that I've talked about, but I'll give you one more example. I get my hair cut in a barber's in, in Cockfosters in North London called Ego Barbers. These guys have got nearly 240,000 followers on Instagram, right? You go, how the heck? There's, this is like four Greek separate barbers, and they've got 240,000 people following them on Instagram. There are some pretty well-known household name brands. They don't have 240,000 followers on Instagram. And they've achieved this because, number one, they're good at what they do. They cut good hair. They post a lot of content on a daily basis on Instagram. It's not all about the haircuts. Some of it's just about them messing around in the shop. They've now not only um, are they very successful within their barbershop, but they go around, well, prior to the pandemic, and obviously after the pandemic, they go around the world training. They go out on stage in Brazil and in the States in front of 3,000 fans. They're treated like rock stars who have come to see these guys because of the personality and the brand that they've created for themselves on Instagram. But this is a business that understands how to turn customers into fans. And that's what really great customer-centric businesses do. They turn customers into fans by doing all those things that I've just alluded to. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Again, a couple of quick questions that come to mind based on um, some of that detail that you were sharing there. It struck me that you gave some examples from the US about customer service and examples from the UK. And I've always been led to assume that the customer service standards in the US are much higher than the UK. I've never Mm -hmm. been fortunate enough to travel around the US to find out if that's true. But from your research and experience, is that still true? That's a great question, Scott. I think, well, again, I've, I mean, I've done, I've done mystery shopping in New York. You know, I've been in some of the great brands over there with hidden cameras. I do a lot of this stuff, sometimes for clients. Sometimes I just do it for myself to, you know, obviously from a marketing perspective to find out who's doing well, who's doing less well. I, what I would say is, I think within the hospitality sector, 
you'll find that service generally in the States is better than it, quite a bit better than it is in the UK. And that's because that's how they earn their money. They, they earn their money basically through tips. And they're very, very focused on it and very focused on delivering you know, good service. So in a general context, I'd say that sector, yes. I would have said in retail terms, not necessarily. And I think it depends. Again, it depends. It's really a brand. It tends to be brand by brand. You're probably yep. more likely to engage with a brand in the States that delivers better customer experience, customer service, just because as a nation, they are a bit more focused on it. So, you know, there, there's probably a general kind of, yeah, they're slightly better at it. But generally speaking, I'd say it comes down to the individual business and it comes down to the culture and how focused or not they are on that. Because that, again, if they're not a people first business, you'll end up with the same issues that you end, that you have in the UK, where the staff are relatively disengaged, not hugely motivated to necessarily help you find the right product or sell to you because they're not jumping out of bed every day to come and work for the business. So because of all the reasons that I mentioned earlier. So I'd say a little bit better, but not to the level that you might imagine. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Thank you. And another question, and this is a big one, and it's related to Amazon. So you mentioned so many big brands there and in preparation for the podcast and customer first and customer centricity, I don't think we could avoid the conversation about Amazon. Sure. It seems to have become such a divisive company for consumers. That, so for example, I have friends that just won't buy from Amazon. So they know it's convenient. They know sometimes they can get things delivered fast or at low prices and good offers. But despite all of that, they morally, they just won't buy from Amazon. <laughs> and it's become divisive in that way. I'm just curious, what's your viewpoint on Amazon? Yeah, look, I, I've no doubt that it has. And, and, and you know, many years ago, I, I, I talked about that. And to be honest with you, I've had that view that that would always be the case. But I'm pretty confident... Mm you'll find that the percentage of customers who take some kind of moral stand and don't want to engage with Amazon will be in the very relatively small, lower percentile. You know, I don't know what it will be, one, two, three, mm. four, five percent. It will not be a significant number of consumers. You know, the real the reality is love them or, or hate them, whatever your whatever your standpoint is, they are a very customer centric business. They're definitely not perfect mm. by any manner of means. But I know for a fact, I mean, because I know a lot of people in the business, one of the one of my the endorsers uh, for my new book uh, recently left and was the, the CEO and general manager of Amazon in the UK and ran Amazon in China. And I've known him for many, many years, a guy called Doug Gurr. So I know the business quite well. I'm not incentivized in any way, by the way, to talk positively about them. I'll give you a, mm-hmm. I'll give you a very balanced view. I mean, they have, um, you know, they, they have this kind of uh, raising the bar concept within the business so whenever they're having meetings you know about projects or or anything that would affect ultimately the customer which pretty much everything you do does in some shape or form they're all there's somebody in that team whose role it is to say is this good enough can we do this better so every single day they they're really behaving like a startup and they're they're can the innovation that comes out is quite credible and they're not scared of failing you know they're, they're they're very happy to fail fast but they're they're constantly trying to move things forward. And if you think of the core model, I mean, let's be honest, it's one of the smartest you know, retail propositions that's ever been created when they created Amazon Prime and created this concept of 
pay as an amount of money and you can have as many deliveries as you want over the course of the year. But of course, mm. it's broadened beyond that now and includes, you know, um, their on-demand TV and, and, and lots of other services. So what they've done is they've always been very clever at thinking about how do we lock people in. And, you know, as a consumer, when Amazon continues to broaden their range of products and, you know, they're moving into pharmaceutical products now and they're going to be a big challenge, I think, to over-the-counter medicine and traditional pharmacies and everything else. If you know that you can get your prescriptions from Amazon or a lot of the products that you buy on a monthly basis to do with your health, along with your groceries as you can now, along with, you know, toys, along with sporting goods, along with homewares, along with, you know, the A to Z of everything else that Amazon sells, because ultimately it sells just about everything, then why wouldn't you go there? And if you also had Amazon Prime and you knew you'd already paid up front for as many deliveries as you wanted over the course of the year, it's a bit of a no-brainer. So I think they've been very clever at working out, you know, how to build the frequency of engagement with consumers. And I'm pretty confident if you talk to most of their customers, they are fans of the brand. I mean, they're the... The last time I checked, they were in the top three most trusted brands in the States. And I know that they've been number one. Uh, whether they are right now or not, I'm not sure. But in regular surveys, they're in the top three. So whilst I accept what you're saying, and there will be some people, for whatever reason, just don't like the, the impact that they may be having or they've read stuff about how they're treating their, you know, the contractors maybe or their employees who are working in their distribution centers. I mean, last, uh, was it two years ago, they opened up their distribution centers and said, come and see for yourself what the environment's like. Now, you know, are any of these stories true about some of their staff have been urinating in bottles because they've been so time pressured or whatever? I dare say it probably is. But I, I also don't think that they, I mean, I'm sure they don't treat their, their, whether it's employees or contractors, you know, necessarily worse than anybody else. I mean, you know, the fact that they have the confidence to open up their distribution centres and invite the public to come and take a tour, that and I know as of last year, they've had over 25,000 people take them up on that. So, you know, I think they become a much more open and transparent business than they used to be. Uh, up until a few years ago, they used to be quite secretive of a lot of the initiatives and the developments that they were undertaking. And then I don't know what happened, but somebody somebody must have said to them, you're missing out on a PR opportunity here, which is why now you, you hear a lot about them on a, almost on a daily basis of all the innovations that are coming out because there's so much stuff going on. And they, I think they recognize the opportunity to put that out there in the public domain and benefit from it. So incredible business what the future looks like for them who knows maybe at some point in time they'll be broken up i mean uh they've obviously got amazon web services to go with the retail propositions mm -hmm. so that along with everything else so they're you know they're a huge 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 entity now and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future but in terms of customer centricity it's hard to hard to find a business that does it better than them mm. that's really interesting thanks for talking through that yeah it's always a company that's on my mind because as you've said i think for me I agree and view them as a very customer-centric company. But there's something you touched on at the very beginning as you were talking there, which was around purpose and that companies of the future that are customer-first have to outwardly express their purpose and what they're here for. And I don't know, uh, like I said, I know there's this underlying view that some people don't either have the assumption or don't like the way they maybe treat their workers and think that people are working in hostile or difficult conditions. But... I wonder I think, whether how and if the tide will turn and that purpose comes 
more to the forefront of what Amazon is all about and how people perceive them in comparison to the convenience factor. It's just a fine balance. I think, I, I think I listen, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I was interviewed, mm. um, I, I did an interview not that long ago about Jeff Bezos and I was asked about his, you know, about his legacy when it was announced mm. that he was stepping up to chair the business. And I said, well, first of all, you can be assured he's still making all all the big decisions because he's, he's executive chairman, not non-executive chairman. So he's still involved here today. <laughs> Even though he's got a CEO, he's probably running the, all, all the operational side of it. I, you know, and I said at the end of the day, I don't think Amazon in itself it will be his legacy. I think his legacy, if he want, well, if he, if it, if I were him, I'd want my legacy to be, for example, you know, what's the impact I have on the world, the positive impact. You know, what can I do with all my wealth? Can, what can I do from a philanthropic perspective? Yeah. You know, how do I how do I invest this great wealth that I've amassed to help others? Who are less fortunate, or to, you know, whatever, however I choose to use it. But how do I, how do I leverage that? How do you know what what impact do I have on the environment? What impact do I have on space and 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 furthering you know the humanities move into space through what I'm doing there? These are the things that I think he'll be remembered by, or we probably want to be remembered by. Now, if you took that and you believe that, then then you you're you're probably right. You might think, well, actually, maybe there's an opportunity here for Amazon to become. A more an even more open and transparent business than we are today, and to prove that we are more purposeful and that it's not just about you know making sure that all our delivery vehicles are electric and the impact of that on the environment, but what else can we do to give back you know to our communities so you know I'm sure you'll see developments there both now and in the future, but I don't think they're the the big ugly, horrible business that some people perceive them to be I think they are customer centric and, and I, I do think that they are generally trying to do good but they could maybe do a better job of how they communicate that yeah so I wanted to move into the online world uh, you know speaking of Amazon and speaking about online customer service and this is the interesting part in your experience you have this broad spectrum of experience both retail and online e-commerce and I'm interested to know what makes the perfect almost seamless best-in-class e-commerce experience in your view. So you've been in a number of these companies. I know you probably research and spend a lot of time exploring e-commerce websites. Can you describe to me maybe your favorite examples and maybe the features and functionality of some of the best-in-class experiences? I mean, to be honest, Scott, I think a lot lot of brands in this day and age have relatively similar kind of paths to purchase. You know, they've worked out how to remove you know, most of the barriers, they don't, they, they don't all do that by any manner. I mean, there are still lots of websites that you look at and you think, Craigie, you know, why, why did you put that there? And why is that the call to action? And that doesn't really make sense to customers. But I think it's become relatively homogenous, which in itself is a good thing because consumers are quite, I think, quite um, uh, aware of the type of experience they're looking for. But then it's also a negative thing because, the one gap when it comes to online, and I'll talk specific, about some of the specifics in a minute, is that it's not that experiential. And I think the one thing that brands have struggled to do is to work out how to create and leverage content and integrate that with the path to purchase to really bring it to life the way that you would hope it would be when you walk into a store, you know, and, and, I, and I still don't think we're there yet. So in my mind, as I look at e-commerce, I think it's still a relatively flat not hugely exciting experience at all, mm. but it's relatively easy these days and it's relatively convenient. So, 
you know, as, a, as somebody who's run lots of online channels, it's about working out where the barriers are for customers and how do you how do you remove those? And you can generally see those in your Google Analytics or whatever solution you're looking at where you see customers dropping off. You can do that, obviously, through research. You can run surveys. But you can also just do it by shopping the site yourself and realizing where, you know, some of the points of confusion might come in. But it's about ultimately making it as easy as possible to find what you're looking for and remembering that not everyone that comes onto the website is buying for themselves. They might be buying for others. They might also be making a gift purchase. So thinking about the needs um, of the different users and customers that are coming onto the website is one way of thinking about how might they go on that journey and how do I make sure they see the right information at the right time to make it successful. Um, one thing uh, where brands do fall down quite often is, is poor product availability. And one of the things that, that, for example, you may not know this, but multi-channel retailers still struggle a bit with this because they don't all have a single view of their inventory of their stock, which me- means that it's not always in the right place where the demand is. And um, that's also why when if you ever click and collect from a business online and you want to pick it up in their store, if they're saying to you, it will be in the store within three to five days or something like that. You know that they're sending it from the warehouse because they don't have a single view of inventory and they're not able to just pick it up, pick it from the shop floor. I mean, it might be that, 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 that they don't have it in that shop and that it's in the warehouse, but more often than not, it's because they don't have a single view of their stock. And that can lead to frustration online because there's not good availability of the size that you want to buy. And then it's about having the right delivery options. It's about, you know, if I'm a gift buyer, then I want to make sure I can send it on a specified date. Normally, that would be the day before someone's birthday. So that guaranteed, I know they've got it just in case it ends up being, you know, being a day late vis-a-vis the the conversation earlier about buying that Balenciaga bag for my wife. It's about having the right payment options. You know, the biggest and most prominent consumer base now online is Gen Z, Gen Z millennials, you know, the younger consumers. And they are very much into buy now, pay later. Um, so, you know, having that type of solution from a, from the likes of ClearPay where customers can, you know, they don't have to pay up front for it now. They can buy it and then, you know, pay it up over, you know, uh, three or four installments is, is really the way to go for that particular uh, target audience because they don't like debt. So they don't use credit cards to the way that I would do as somebody in their mid-50s. You know, credit card adoption is still quite high. It's probably in the 70 to 80 percentile range, whereas with Gen Z, it's more like 15 to 20%. So it's understanding who it is you're serving, who it is you're selling to, and what's the proposition that's going to be most relevant to them, and remembering that one size is never going to fit all. So you've got to cater to the needs of different customers. And that, again, you you know, you know, bring that back to what I was saying earlier about the cost to serve. If the focus is on the cost to serve, you probably won't do all this that uh, as well as you might do. Whereas if the focus is on building customer lifetime value, for example, I mean, I I buy skincare products. And, you know, I always find it very frustrating if you go on a website and they don't enable you to just select from a previous order and just, you know, I'll have the same stuff that I bought last month or three months ago. You know, and you've got to go through the process and the rigmarole of adding something to your bag again and then, you know, paying for it and checking out. So it's just really taking that longer term view of, you know, customer lifetime value and what type of experience you need to deliver. And I think the other thing I would I would just mention is about building trust. And I think you need to realize that when, when you're selling online, you might you might think you've got a well known brand, but 
there's lots of people out there probably never heard of you before and might be coming to your website for the first time. Therefore, how do you engender trust in that customer if they're shopping mm-hmm. with you for the first time? And that that involves, for example, allowing them to contact you, allowing them, giving them the confidence that if something goes wrong, you're going to deal with it. So making customer service a bit more prominent than it tends to be these days on most websites would be a way to go, as well as offering free returns. You know, if, if you charge for returns, why would you buy something online from a brand that's going to charge you to return it? If you've got that doubt about whether it's going to be right or not. And, and some of these factors are the reasons why people choose to click and collect in the first place, because it empowers right. you as a consumer, because you're not sitting there worrying about, well, they don't offer me free returns, so I might have to, I might have to pay for it. If it's not the right size or I don't like it, um, what happens if I'm not in, you know, when it's delivered? Because you might be slightly confused around the, the delivery proposition. So I'd say there, there isn't, genuinely, there isn't a single website that I can sort of point to and say, well, that's absolutely perfect. But the types of brands that, you know, the brands I've spoken about before, the Home Depots, the AO.com, Hotel Chocolat is another brand. You know, they've got, they, these are customer centric businesses. And therefore, if you look at their website, or you go into their physical environment when they've got one, you tend to find that they are more customer-centric. Their people are engaged. You can tell they're being looked after and developed within the business, and they've got a good culture because you can you can just see it through the messaging, through their understanding of how they've addressed some of these barriers. These are things that we're not necessarily always conscious of as consumers when we go into a website, but but they are they are barriers, you know. If you if you know that you're going to have to pay to return something, if you don't have the right payment options that you want to use, if you don't have the right delivery proposition, um, if you don't find it easy for people to find the right product in the first place, these are all reasons why customers abandon websites. And you know, conversion rates online today in retail average still about four to four point two five percent. That's pretty low. Now, why is that? Okay, not a hundred percent of people are ready to buy. Sometimes you're just browsing. Sometimes you're just having a wee nosy, or you're thinking about, I might come back here next month when I'm ready to make a purchase. And that probably accounts for a good fifty or sixty percent of people that are on the website at that at any one moment. But why is it so low? And I think it's so low because of those issues. It's either a lack of trust or a lack of belief or a question mark over what will happen if something goes wrong, which is why I do think pretty much almost every brand can still do a better job of reassuring consumers as far as that's concerned. I think if you can do that, then you'll certainly convert more customers online. Mm. And I had an, a bit of a kind of eureka, an aha moment as you were talking there, and you were talking about cost to serve again. And my final question to close out the podcast today is, so I was thinking about what what maybe can marketers do to become more customer-centric? And you've given some examples earlier in this episode but I was thinking that a lot of the marketers that I've worked with, me, myself, a lot of us are targeted with revenue or return on investment or uh, financial related goals as part of marketing, which essentially, if you drill that down, comes down to cost to serve. So perhaps supporting your marketers and giving marketers more customer experience or satisfaction related goals alongside the financial goals is one way to make marketers more customer-centric. My question to you is going to be, are, are there any other things that come to mind for you where marketers spend a lot of their time and that time is really perhaps wasted and you think it could be better utilized? Things that aren't really customer-centric and don't really matter to customers that just marketers get caught up in. 
Well, I I don't know about that, but what I do know is that you know the focus in most businesses is almost exclusively on the top of the funnel. You know, it's mm. it's always about bringing people in the door, and it's not nearly enough on what do we do to bring people back. But to to talk briefly to a point you made, Scott, about being targeted on ROI and everything, that you can actually take that right to the top of the business because. You know, the reality is the major, and I have an issue with how CEOs are remunerated <laughs> because 99% right. of CEOs are remunerated on what happens in this coming financial year. Now, you can understand that, right? You've obviously got to make money or you don't have a business. The problem, though, by only primarily focusing on the next financial year is that many of the decisions that are made around investment and what the business does to move itself forward and develop, you know, a lot of decisions that you might make aren't you know they're not taken the investments aren't made because oh well if we put that new customer service solution in place or whatever it happens to be it's not going to pay back for two and a half years therefore it's going to affect our ability to achieve our EBITDA targets for this year which means I'm not going to get my bonus right so Mm. you can cascade that all the way down to marketers to merchandisers to buyers to it doesn't matter where you're sitting in the business you'll find that the objectives are very much aligned with that. And and again, it's what I, when I was talking earlier, I used this line, which is, if you need to be 100% right, you'll be 100% late, basically. <laughs> um, because what I mean by that is if you have to prove the ROI, if you have to prove the business case before you do anything, you'll always miss out on the next biggest thing because you'll be focusing in on the wrong area. Um The other thing I would say is I think that if you look at the growth of social commerce, I'd say that's where marketers need to be really focusing right now. You know, whether that's Instagram, whether it's Facebook, whether it's TikTok or whatever channel it happens, you know, whatever platform it happens to be, you know, we are, and I know from my own experience, we're increasingly engaging with brands in these environments when we are in the right state of mind as consumers, you know, we're in, relatively speaking, when you're in social media, normally you're in a half decent mood, unless, of course, somebody's posted something negative <laughs> to you. Um, so you're ta- so you're potentially catching people at, at a better moment for a spontaneous purchase, maybe even more than a planned purchase. And I think that's I'd be thinking about how do I how do I stitch social commerce and how I can target consumers more effectively, you know, as part of both my acquisition and my retention strategy but i would certainly if i were a marketer and today my job essentially involved customer acquisition i would want to learn as quickly as i could about what customer retention looks like because i think that if you can't do that and do that well in the future you probably won't have a job as an acquisition marketer Um, and i'm not saying that acquisition marketing is is dead or isn't something that should be focused on of course it should be but it, but it can't be at the exclusion of customer retention. And there has to be so much more emphasis put on that and building customer lifetime value. Otherwise, all you're ever going to do is focus on ROAS and bringing somebody in the door who probably isn't going to come back in the future because you might have acquired the wrong person in the first place, for example. Or you might have acquired somebody who made one purchase but never came back because the experience on the website wasn't great, because service wasn't great, because there was no loyalty program or great email communication in place to continue to build that relationship with customers. Therefore, you just wasted all that cash bringing somebody in, in, you know, in the door in the first place. I think that's a really great way to, to close out the podcast as well. It's a, a lasting message for marketers to think about. And, and I know 
uh, I thank you again for your time, Martin, today, because you've definitely opened my eyes up to areas of customer centricity that I either hadn't thought about or you've given me a new perspective on, which I really appreciate as on podcasting. But uh, right. before I let you go, uh, sure. I know that you've have like uh, your new book is out, so congratulations yes. on that. That was a uh, that was uh, around a week ago now, so it's a uh, fresh. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes, so our listeners can read more on this these topics that we've been covering today. But do you just want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and what you do? Sure. Easy. www.martinnewman.co.uk. And you can find everything on there about me, who I am, my background, what I do and how I do it. And if you're interested in buying the book or signing up for the mini MBA, there are links on there to how you can do that. But as you would expect, the book's available in all good bookstores including Amazon, (laughs) (laughs) as well as including some physical, more traditional stores and their online uh, platforms. And the mini MBA uh, can be accessed, as I say, through my website, but also through my partner, the Oxford College of Marketing and Oxford College of Leadership and Management. Brilliant. So that's martinnewman.co.uk for our listeners. And that link will be in the show notes for you to find out or to find all of Martin's resources that he shared in today's podcast. Okay, Martin, thanks so much for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Thanks, Scott. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, the Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.